The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC, and here's your top five at five. We'll start in New Orleans and the state of Louisiana, picking up the pieces in the wake of Hurricane Ida. More than one million people still without power. We are live on the ground ahead. And the U.S. completing its withdrawal from Afghanistan just hours ahead of deadline day. President Biden scheduled to speak today, the latest out of Washington next. And on Wall Street, investors gearing up for the final day of August. We made it. Can anything stand in the way of this big rally we are seeing on Wall Street? We'll discuss that in a second. One billion dollars in sales, just not enough for Zoom. Many dumping the stock in the wake of its latest quarterly report. And the European Union weighing new travel restrictions on the U.S. as COVID cases move higher. We discuss all of this here on August 31st, 2021 here on Worldwide Exchange. Good morning. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan on this last trading day of August. Let's take a look at stock futures and how we're shaping up uh, for the final day here. S&P 500 is up 10 points. The Dow Jones Industrial up 67. And the Nasdaq also indicating a higher open by around 50 points. Now, let's put some perspective to this market because the S&P 500 is inching even higher into record high territory. The index now on track to end August with its best performance over the first eight months of the year since 1997 with a more than 20 percent gain, as you can see right here. But the rally may seem impressive on paper. According to Dow Jones, 2021 is only the sixth strongest performance through August over the past 50 years. And if history is any indicator, according to LPL Financial, the last five times that the S&P 500 rose more than 15 percent through the end of August, stocks only saw a positive performance for the final four months of the year, Four times the S&P 500 did set to gain 3% this month. A similar performance in Japan. India's Bombay Sensex, though, up over 8% in August as more companies go public there and the economy rebounds. Now, outside of all this market stuff, take a look at shares of Zoom. This is our big pre-market mover here, sinking. Uh, Despite beating expectations on the top and bottom line for its most recent quarter, investors seem to be worrying about the slowing pace of growth that the the company is seeing right now in shares. Wow, take a look at that, Uh, down around 11%. Much more on Zoom throughout the morning. But first up, uh, we head to Louisiana, the Gulf Coast now. And embattered Louisiana after Ida made landfall as the region's strongest storm since Hurricane Katrina 16 years ago. Residents are coming back to destruction and starting the long process of recovery. NBC's Jay Gray joins us now from New Orleans with the latest. Jay, good morning. Hey, Seema, good morning to you. And look, this rain that we're getting early this morning, not a big help for the rescue or the recovery effort right now. There is damage that spreads far and wide across this state at this point. Here's an example of just some of it here in New Orleans. And again, this is a scene that's playing out across all of southeast Louisiana right now. 
the worst of the damage. It's, just, it's, it's, it's a lot. Is along the southeast coast where Ida made landfall. This is unreal. This is nothing I've ever seen before. In a state that's seen its share of devastating storms, Ida was different. The storm surge and driving rain swallowing communities along the shoreline and even as far inland as Laplace. Families gathering what they can, boats and high water rescue vehicles ferrying many to higher ground. Malik Mitchell clinging to his two-month-old daughter, Chloe. I got my baby out, though. I wasn't going to stop until I get my baby out. In New Orleans, the problem continues to be power. The entire metro area in the dark. It's about 1.1 million homes and businesses. It's well over a million people. Ida pulling down power cables and knocking out all eight transmission lines that bring power to the city. Officials saying the catastrophic damage could take weeks to repair. For that restoration process, there's going to be some priorities so that the most critical infrastructure comes up first. The magnitude of Ida and the mess left behind, leaving survivors with a new perspective. I'm never staying home again, I tell you that. I'm definitely going to evacuate and never going to chance this again. The remnants from the storm, evidence, it's just not a risk worth taking. Yeah, now right now there's 5,000 National Guard troops on the ground here. More teams, rescue, recovery, and cleanup teams on their way in to help out from across the country. Seema, it's going to be a rough go for a long time here. Yeah, I was curious, Jay, what kind of help Louisiana was getting from some of it, the neighboring states uh, at the federal level to really accelerate this recovery timeline. Well, that declaration of disaster from the president really opened up some federal money as well as federal help from the federal government moving in. From surrounding states and from far away as California, you've got rescue teams are here now. some of the hardest hit areas. Mm -hmm. Then you've got all the contractors that are trying to pull away some of the bricks and the things that are behind me, get things cleaned up so they can really assess the situation and begin to move forward. Always great reporting, Jay. Thank you, Jay Gray. Also new this morning, the U.S. completing its evacuation out of Afghanistan, officially ending the 20-year war with the final U.S. troops taking flight just hours ahead of the August 31st deadline. NBC's Tracy Potts joins us now. Tracy, just a historic moment in the making here. It certainly was, Seema, but it was also a dangerous mission to the very end. The U.S. military reports they were thwarting attacks by ISIS in those final hours. The last soldier to leave Afghanistan, marking the end of America's longest war. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. The last flight out ends the largest non-combat airlift in U.S. history, moving more than 120,000 people, including 6,000 U.S. citizens. The State Department is tracking up to 200 Americans left behind. We will keep working to help them. Our commitment to them has no deadline. My question to the secretary was, what is the plan? What is the plan now to get Americans out? President Biden speaks to the nation this afternoon, defending his decision not to extend today's withdrawal deadline. In a statement, he says it was the unanimous recommendation of the Joint Chiefs and of all of our commanders on the ground that ending our military mission was the best way 
to protect the lives of our troops and those who still want to leave. The Taliban promises safe passage, celebrating the U.S. departure with gunfire. A trillion-dollar war is now over. More than 2,400 Americans lost their lives, including 13 in last week's airport attack. She's very caring, loving, just a good girl, a good lady. As the war ends, grief, for many, is just beginning. Also just beginning is the diplomatic effort now to deal with Afghanistan with no working embassy, no military on the ground and no roadmap for dealing with uh, this country that is now run by America's longtime enemy, Seema. Yeah, I know the U.S. is leaning on some of our partners like Qatar and Turkey uh, for those diplomatic efforts. Uh, but it remains to be seen what exactly that looks yeah. like. We'll be looking to hear from President Biden later this afternoon as he addresses Americans on this uh, big day. Tracy, thank you for bringing us the latest. Tracy Potts. And back to the markets we go, which continues to grind higher in the face of COVID, geopolitical fears. The S&P 500 closing at a record high for, get this, the 53rd time this year. And check out these stats from Howard Silverblatt at S&P Dow Jones Indices. The S&P 500 has posted at least one closing high every week for 13 straight weeks going back to June, led by technology and industrials, two sectors there. Is it all blue skies ahead? Let's bring in Daryl Cronk, CIO of Wells Fargo Wealth and Investment Management. Daryl, good morning to you. As an investor, I mean, you have to be mindful, right, of all sorts of risks, whether it's the economy, whether it's the uh, the, the potential for tapering, which we continue to talk about. But what about geopolitics? Because I, for the longest time, it was Russia and China that was seen as top of mind. But now with Afghanistan, the U.S. pulling out, the prospect of terrorism, whether it's in that region, what kind of risk that presents to Americans? How are you sizing that up as an investor? Yeah, good morning, Seema. It is quite remarkable as we finish August out, great statistics that we have you know, one of the top five storms of all time make landfall on the Gulf Coast. You have a, a diplomatic challenge, if not emergency, in Afghanistan. And you have the Delta virus uh, kind of running rampant through a lot of states across the country. And yet, you know, the markets just continue to move higher and higher. Um, we still think the, the market uh, for the rest of this year, for the remaining four months of the year, sets up very nicely for a uh, favorable outlook. And in some cases, I think people are underestimating the strength of this market. We always talk about complacency, you know, worrying about when that next 5 to 10% correction is coming. The reality is we could power through here nicely on our way up to closer to 5,000 on the S&P uh, over the coming months. Four months left in the year. What kind of changes are you recommending clients make to their portfolio, whether it's adding more money to certain sectors? Uh, you know, if you had to sort of put money into the market today, where would it be? Yeah. So it's a really great point because I think what is missed on the general new highs, you know, every day, every week in the, in the markets is that there's a strong violent rotation that's happening underneath. So, for example, growth has outperformed value, particularly on large caps, by 12 to 1300 basis points over the last three months. It's just killed it. In fact, today, growth looks a little bit rich to us. When you think about the long term averages, growth sectors tend to trade at about a two to three price earnings point uh, premium. Today, they're trading almost six to seven points premium, right? Um, and yet, the strongest revisions coming off the back of earnings season have all come for value and cyclical. So we still think there's great opportunity in places like financials, industrials, materials, 
energy. We really want investors to stay indexed to that pro-cyclical, pro-recovery trade. And in fact, you can look at some areas like small cap and emerging markets where they've both underperformed materially. Emerging markets are down year to date now, one of the few equity sectors uh, around the globe that are actually negative for the year in a year where things are so positive. So there is some value out there if you pay attention and look closely. That's interesting. And just to your point about growth outperforming value, you look at a name like Apple and Google, they're both up around 5 to 7% just in the last uh, four weeks. Daryl, great to see you. Thank you for joining us. Daryl Kronk of Wells Fargo. When we come back, call them the corporate catchphrases of the year, ESG and net zero. But what do these pledges really mean? And are companies and countries alike living up to their promises? CNBC investigates. Plus, it may be Reddit's new favorite meme stock after surging some 1,500% this year alone. We're going to get you that name ahead. And later, fallout from China's new restrictions on children and online video gaming. A very busy hour still ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Time now for your big money movers, four stock stories we are watching this morning. And I'd like to start with shares of Zoom because the stock is on the move pre-market, down 10 percent, despite topping estimates on the top and bottom line for its most recent quarter. The company did, however, show slowing user growth versus a quarter ago, not including the after-hours price change. Zoom stock is up about 3 percent since the start of the year, trailing the S&P 500, which is up almost 21 percent over the same period. You can catch Zoom CFO on Squawk Box at 840 Eastern. Shares of Robinhood under pressure after a rough trading day. Yesterday on a report, regulators may be looking at a possible ban on a practice that accounts for the bulk of Robinhood's revenue. There was also a CNBC report yesterday that PayPal is weighing getting into the brokerage business. Shares right now uh, down about 1.6 percent. 
and call it Reddit and Wall Street Bet's new favorite stock. After surging nearly 40% yesterday, shares of Support.com are up again in the pre-market trade as retail investors focus their attention on the heavily shorted software stock. Support.com shares are up nearly 350% in the past eight trading days and up more than 1,500% this year. Nearly 60% of Support.com's float shares are currently sold short. The average U.S. stock has about 5% of shares sold short. And shares of Chinese gaming stocks bouncing back from session lows overnight. They're trading on news that China is limiting online gaming for minors to just three hours a week and three days a week. Chinese state media says the move is designed to protect the mental and physical health of minors defined as under 18 and to prevent overindulgence in online gaming. These were some of the biggest movers movers yesterday. NetEase was actually down about 10 percent in yesterday's trade. Worldwide Exchange, back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back. Let's take a look at markets here, specifically the cryptocurrency trade. Uh, Bitcoin is down around 2.5% right now, but a month to date, chart would show you that Bitcoin is up around 15 percent so far this month. So it's actually outperforming equities, at least in the month of August. This, of course, has been a rather volatile trade, though, for the year. Straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, the road to recovery in Louisiana after Ida barreled through the region. We speak with a former FEMA administrator with what's in store. Plus, that trip to Europe just got a little more complicated. The EU weighing new restrictions on U.S. travel as COVID cases continue to tick higher. We are live in London with the reaction straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. The final U.S. troops are airlifted out of Afghanistan as America's longest war comes to an end. One million plus still without power in Louisiana as the state begins the long process of the recovery. And highlighting the real factors holding hiring back in the U.S., here's a hint. It might not just be enhanced unemployment insurance. It's Tuesday, August 31st, 2021, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. I'm Sima Modi in for Brian Sullivan. Here is how stock futures are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. hour here in New York. And once again, we are higher, led by the Nasdaq, higher by 42 points in pre-market trade. In fact, the Dow Jones Industrial up 77 and the S&P 500 is up around 10 points. It is the final trading day of the month. And the top gainers in the Dow, Goldman Sachs, Salesforce, Travelers. It just shows you how uh, investors have certainly been diversifying their approach. Sector-wise, financials are up about 5% this month. AIG, Lincoln National, Goldman leading the way. And those stocks are actually up double digits in the month of August, followed closely by technology, which is up around 4% for the month. Names like Paycom uh, in the semiconductor space, NVIDIA, 
all up at least 16 percent following uh, some strong earnings over the past couple of weeks. Now, on the downside, Boeing, Visa and Amgen are leading uh, the losers there for the month of August. You can see Boeing down about 3.5 percent. Let's take another look at futures again, because yesterday another record high close for the S&P 500 and the Dow responding to those comments from Jerome Powell, the Fed chair on Friday, a number of uh, better than expected earnings reports. But we did look at shares of Zoom. That's a big stock mover we are watching at this hour, down nearly 10 percent. Remember, earnings did beat street expectations on the top and bottom line. But some concerning comments on their earnings call, as well as responses from sell-side analysts about what happens once employees return to the office, what happens as children return to school, uh, how that impacts the need for these products like Zoom, plus the competitive factors like Microsoft Teams, Cisco's WebEx, right? These are two competitors in this specific space that are challenging Zoom, its market share, and its dominance in this space. Now, just putting this market move into perspective, it's down around 7% so far in the past three months. Uh, It's about flat for the year, year to date. But again, this was one of the biggest beneficiaries of the pandemic and one of the biggest winners on the S&P last year, gaining as much as 300%. Making headlines, Paramount Studios is suing its insurance company, alleging the company uh, insurer failed to cover the majority of its pandemic-related claims on Mission Impossible 7. Shooting of the film was shut down seven times due to COVID. A new study at a Belgium hospital system found the Moderna COVID vaccine well, it creates twice as many as as many antibodies as Pfizer's version. The results were published in a letter to the Journal of the American Medical Association. The criminal fraud case against Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes officially getting underway today with jury selection. She faces a dozen felony counts in a trial that is expect, expected to last about three months. Coming up on Worldwide Exchange, from worker shortages to COVID concerns, there's A new report this morning on the state of the restaurant industry will bring you those findings next. The U.S. completing its military evacuation of Afghanistan just hours ahead of its self-imposed August 31st deadline. This Major General Chris Donahue boarding a C-17 cargo plane at the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul yesterday, the final service member to leave Afghani soil. Our own Eamon Javers joined us now with uh, what this moment really means for Washington and what to expect from the president in his speech today, Eamon. Seema, we do expect to hear from the president later on today, and I'll get to that. But America's longest war ended at 3.29 p.m. Eastern time yesterday, as you say, with the departure of the remaining American military forces. The commanding general, Chris Donahue, was the last American boot on the ground. He's the commanding general of the 82nd Airborne Division. And, of course, uh, this now sets up a situation in which Americans left behind are going to need to be rescued because the military presence from Afghanistan has now departed. We got some word from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, yesterday about just how many Americans we're talking about. He said under 200 American citizens who want to leave remain in Afghanistan. The United States has now suspended its diplomatic presence in Kabul. Uh, Operations now transfer to Doha, Qatar uh, for the diplomatic piece of this mission. The U.S. will work to open the Kabul airport as soon as possible, Blinken said yesterday, for civilian traffic. That's important because 
because uh, there will be some um, Americans and Afghans who want to leave. Commitment to get Afghan allies out, he says, has no deadline. That's going to be an ongoing mission for the United States. And Blinken gave us a sense of exactly how this process is going to work going forward. Here's what he said yesterday. We're also working to identify ways to support Americans, legal permanent residents, and Afghans who have worked with us and who may choose to depart via overland routes. We have no illusion that any of this will be easy or rapid. This will be an entirely different phase from the evacuation that just concluded. And General Kenneth McKenzie, he's the commander of CENTCOM, gave some explanation yesterday in his remarks to press at the Pentagon of exactly why the decision was made to continue with the evacuation, even as some Americans did remain on the ground. Here's what he said. There's a lot of heartbreak associated with this departure. We did not get everybody out that we wanted to get out. But I think if we'd stayed another 10 days, Louis, we wouldn't have gotten everybody out that we wanted to get out. And there still would have been people who would have been disappointed with it. So, Seema, you can expect that we'll hear more from about all of this from President Biden today. We expect those remarks at 1.30 p.m. at the White House here. Uh, the president expected to talk about those Americans who are left behind, the path forward in Afghanistan for the new Taliban government now that American forces have lost the longest war that we've fought, just, 20, just shy of 20 years uh, in combat in Afghanistan. Seema, back yeah. over to you. And, Eamon, it's been about two weeks since the fall of Kabul. It seemed to leave a significant mark on Joe Biden's presidency. I'm curious how you think he handles this speech, the message he tries to convey to Americans uh, later this afternoon. It's a difficult one. He's going to have to explain a lot here. The history is a lot to unpack, why we were there, whether this 20-year war was, in fact, worth it or not, putting that in some context uh, for the veterans and the people who spent time in Afghanistan, the United States uh, public generally, which has committed enormous resources uh, and sons and daughters to this effort. Uh, so he's going to have to explain that. And he's going to have to explain his own decision to withdraw. Why was this the right call to withdraw entirely as opposed to keeping some sort of shell force there that it could have kept the Afghan national government going uh, sort of perpetually uh, propped up by U.S. military forces? The president has said that wasn't the right call. He's going to have to explain that again now that Kabul has fallen. Seema. Yeah. First time in 20 years, no U.S. troops uh, on Afghan soil. Eamon, thank you for bringing us the latest. Eamon Javers in D.C. You bet. To another developing story this morning, the European Union now recommending halting non-essential travel to the region from the U.S. because of the rise of COVID-19 cases. The decision comes amid the growing spread of the Delta variant in the U.S., where vaccination rates have also fallen behind the average rates of shots in the EU. Now, European Travel List, which is reviewed every two weeks, isn't binding on member states, but it has generally set a pattern for who can visit uh, the continent. Let's get the reaction in Europe with Juliana Tattlebaum in our London newsroom. And Juliana, we've already seen an update from Italy up, uh, saying now it's requiring travelers to be not only vaccinated, but present a negative COVID test upon arrival. Uh, good morning, Seema. That's right. Well, what we have here from the EU, they're looking to reinstate travel restrictions on U.S. travelers with, as you say, America's infection rate now far above the block safe level. They created a framework earlier this summer which set a limit at 75 infected individuals per 100,000 inhabitants. Now the U.S. is looking at 588 new cases among 100,000 people. So it's well above the uh, limit set out by the EU. But the key here is that this is 
is just guidance. It's non-binding, and it is up to every single member state to make decisions around their own rules. So what we're expecting to see is more countries potentially bring in testing rules in addition to um, vaccination requirements. And we have seen a pretty significant reaction in airline stocks today. Yesterday was a U.K. bank holiday when this was reportedly going to happen. So today the stocks are catching up and actually reacting. So IAG, British Airways owner, about 3 percent lower in early trade. They have a huge transatlantic business, bearing in mind that the U.K. is separate from the EU. This no doubt will affect them moving forward. Uh, EasyJet down about 1.7 percent. Wizz Air down about 2.9 percent. I think the key here is the uncertainty that this introduces. The What we have seen here in the U.K. and in Europe over the last several months throughout the summer season is that these rules can change very, very quickly. So this uncertainty, the uncertainty itself is likely what will weigh on travelers' minds, even if the current restrictions don't change dramatically because these are non-binding recommendations from the EU at the EU level um, rather than actual rules. But we may well see various member states take action and restrict travel uh, immediately. Seema. Yeah, it raises a lot of more concerns and it just becomes a bit more complex, right, traveling overseas. Uh, Juliana, thanks for bringing us to that, bringing us that uh, news there. Juliana Tattlebaum in London. All right, back home, millions still without power in Louisiana. One day after Hurricane Ida barrels through the region in what was its strongest storm in 16 years, NBC's Jay Gray still on the ground in New Orleans and joins us now uh, with the latest, Jay, on these recovery efforts. Hey, good morning, Seema. And a burst of rain over the last 30, 45 minutes or so, it's cleared at this point, which will help those teams that are going get, to get out in a few hours here. This is the kind of thing they'll be dealing with. Look at the damage here in the downtown area. This building actually is a building that uh, local legend has it. Louis Armstrong grew up in from the age seven, taken in by a foster family, and, and where he learned to, to play music. And it's obviously, as you can see, destroyed here. The, the facing pulled off all of the brick on the ground. And, and that scene's playing out across all of southeast Louisiana right now. Along the coastline, it's the water that caused the major issues. Here and, and more inland, it's the wind. And boy, that wind was ferocious when the storm moved through here. So you've got 5,000 National Guard troops on the ground. You've got crews from as far away as California, 30 states that are moving in to try and help get things started here and get things moving. That's going to be difficult until they have power to, to really in earnest begin the recovery effort here. And that seems is going to take a little time. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. Jay, thank you. Jay Gray for us live in New Orleans. For more on the response to the storm, let's bring in uh, Maury Goodman, former communications and public affairs at FEMA. Maury, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. It seems like the biggest effect has been on the energy sector. Energy, the largest power company in Louisiana, warning that it won't take days but weeks for some of these hardest hit areas to get power back. Right. Yeah, there's some 20,000 um, uh uh, power company uh, uh, workers that have uh, that have uh, uh, made their way to uh, Louisiana from all over the country, and it is going to take weeks, and it's going to take it's going to take weeks to get all the power on, and people are just going to have to uh, to uh, grin and bear it because it's uh, this is a, a very very treacherous disaster, and so much of the area has been impacted um, that uh, it's going to take a long time. Right now. <clears throat> There are contractors and federal employees um, and uh, the Red Cross <clears throat> are in Louisiana by the, by the scores. Uh, the most important thing right now is 
finding survivors and finding victims in the rubble and in some of the inundated areas. And then after that, the, the most important thing is, it, first of all, it's life safety, but then <clears throat> the most important thing is debris removal. There are private companies that are bringing in uh, hundreds of trucks to remove all the debris, which can have pathogens in them, dangerous, uh, all, all kinds of dangerous items. And, uh, uh, and it's so important to remove the debris. Mm -hmm. The federal contractors are also going to be looking at all of the public damage, the damage to uh, sewer systems. It's very important to get the water systems and the, uh, and the sewer systems running uh, as soon as possible. If, uh, if any of them are down, I know that in some of the areas they have been uh, uh, contaminated. Right. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so that's one of the, those are some of the most important things. And then they'll go through and do, um, and do the uh, uh, inspections for, uh, for all, of the, uh, all of the homes. Maury, and, when you look at uh, some of the fears <clears throat> now, you know, there's fears of storm surge, additional flooding. But as you track this storm, because you've gone through so many of these uh, natural disasters, uh, what worries you the most? I think what worries me the most is the uh, is the long term impact of people not having a place to live. Uh, there is uh, uh, I don't know exactly what the number is right now. A lot of people are in Red Cross shelters or staying with relatives. So the most important thing right now, what worries me the most is getting people somewhere safe and uh, somewhere where they can have a roof over their heads. Uh, and that's going to be one of the most important things. There's they're probably going to be bringing in uh, house trailers as they, ha as they have in the past. They're going to be handing out vouchers for hotel rooms. So it's really important for the life safety and for food and shelter and all of that. And then at the same time, all of the inspectors are looking at all of the things that need to be repaired and prioritizing them. And also the people that are interfacing between the federal government, the state government and the local governments. It's a massive undertaking with thousands of people that are taking part in this recovery. Lastly, the levy system, do you think it's doing its job? Well, it did do its job in, uh, in New Orleans. And uh, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the people are just, you know, thanking God that, uh, that the repairs that were made, the improvements that were made after Katrina held this time. And uh, most of the flooding, from what I understand, and I'm not there, but from, from what I understand, most of the flooding was from rain and not from, uh, from the surge. Yeah, and it just speaks to why this infrastructure is such an important and crucial part of uh, the U.S.'s plan here. Maury, we'll leave the conversation there. Thank you for joining us. Maury Goodman. Coming up on Worldwide Exchange, are enhanced unemployment benefits doing more harm than good? Are they the reason businesses are having a hard time finding workers? It's a big debate right now from Wall Street to Main Street. Well-followed economist Mark Zandi will weigh in next. But first, if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We will be right back. Good morning. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The National Restaurant Association is out with its latest State of the Industry report, and our Kate Rogers joins us with the details. 
Restaurant sales have made a nice recovery so far this year and are projected to reach $789 billion in 2021. That's up nearly 20 percent since 2020, thanks to pent-up consumer demand and the availability of vaccines. This is still, though, well below pre-pandemic levels. But labor remains a hurdle for operators. 75 percent of restaurant operators said recruiting employees was their top challenge as of June, the highest level ever recorded in this survey in 20 years. For context, in January, that number was just 8 percent. Overall, eating and drinking establishments are nearly 1 million jobs or 8 percent below pre-pandemic levels. Restaurants are also seeing higher prices. Menu prices have risen about 4 percent. And while pandemic-era trends like technology and outdoor dining have been positive for business, and 2021 has been strong so far, the Delta variant is threatening the recovery. Six in ten adults said they've changed dining habits due to Delta. 19 percent said that they stopped going to restaurants altogether. And you can see the impact of rising COVID cases in the casual dining sector in particular. The biggest year-to-date winners are once again those that operate well in more restricted settings like Chipotle, Domino's and Papa John's as compared to those that rely on indoor dining availability. Seema, back over to you. Okay, thank you so much. Now, some restaurants have leaned into the new dining paradigm of takeout, delivery and technology. Hip City Veg is one of them and it's announcing it will actually be expanding Philadelphia and D.C. restaurants into New York City. Joining us now is the founder and CEO of Hip City Veg, Nicole Marquis. Nicole, it's great to have you on. Good morning. When things are so tough, when things are so tough with this Delta variant, as you just heard from Kate Rogers report there, why are you planning to expand and increase your footprint? Yeah, well, we have been planning to enter the New York market for a few years. We had a little setback while the world was turned upside down, but we're now back to growth. What has really changed is our approach to expansion. Our expansion model in New York pairs a new flagship store in Union Square with Go Kitchens, which is smaller delivery and pickup-only locations in other neighborhoods so that we can introduce our delicious vegan burgers and fries to hungry New Yorkers right from the start. Delivery orders, just to give a little color on this, delivery orders and online orders pre-pandemic were about 15% of sales. Delivery orders now are close to 50% of our sales. Like everyone else, we're waiting for the return of office workers to the core business districts and areas in the city where some of our stores are located. But in the meantime, we're working hard to bring food directly to people in their homes. So with this hybrid model, we plan to Mm -hmm. add eight locations by February, which is more than double our current number of locations. That's really exciting. And I mean, that's just a huge stat. Delivery makes up 50 percent of your sales. What are you expecting, Nicole, going into this fall with mask mandates, restrictions on indoor dining? Do you expect more consumers to dine and dine in or opt for delivery? Yeah, you know, we have seen a dramatic shift since the pandemic to online ordering, including delivery. Our online sales, as I mentioned, have more than tripled from what they were pre-pandemic. And We've really embraced that. Our team has embraced it, and it is an integral part of our growth strategy now. Our delivery-only locations, or Go Kitchens, will help us get our food to customers faster and fresher, which is key to success in adapting to this change in consumer behavior. But we also really want to have some brick and mortars so we can still serve customers that do get out of their homes. And it is an important part of brand identity, brand recognition, and culture building. Um, 
But this past year has seen unprecedented interest and investment in plant-based brands, especially with the continuing crushing news about the climate. So there's an added urgency for solutions. So with that in mind, we see this as the ideal time to grow despite the challenges. Nicole, who would you say are are the biggest competitors of of yours? I mean, we were looking at some of the publicly listed fast service restaurants like Chipotle, uh, Sweetgreens, which is not public yet, but apparently does have plans to take the IPO route. Uh, Of these, you know, fast growing chains, which one would you say is your biggest competitor? Definitely Chipotle, Sweet Greens. We like to think that we're going to be the next Shake Shack and are striving to do that in a plant-based way. So fast casuals in general, we are competing with the space. There is opportunity in the space, um, especially in the plant-based segment of the industry. So we're excited for the future. Vaccine mandates, do you expect to uh, do you expect this to will be a bigger trend in the restaurant industry going forward? Yeah, as far as vaccine mandates, I think it's a good option, especially if all indoor venues and businesses in a city or state have to comply so that we're not singling out restaurants and making it harder to draw customers or employees. You know, we all have an obligation to protect ourselves, our businesses, and our economy by getting vaccinated and to protect the people who can't get vaccinated because of legitimate health issues. Our stores, we hosted a vaccination drive and have done everything we can to make it easy for our staff to get vaccinated. We actually mandated masks again, even before our city did to protect each other. But we all have to find a way to get people over their fears and hesitancies and get everyone vaccinated who safely can be. Nicole, great to have you on and good luck with your expansion plans. Nicole Marquis. Thank you so much. Back to the markets. Today is the final trading day of August. Come next month, a key pandemic lifeline for many Americans is set to expire. Enhanced unemployment benefits, something many say are holding back hiring and bringing the U.S. back to full employment. But my next guest has another take, sharing his thoughts in the Philadelphia Inquiry Inquirer yesterday with the headline, Why the Lack of Workers Blame the Lack of Child Care, COVID Illnesses and the Economy Reopening All at Once. Joining me now is Moody's Analytics Chief Economist Mark Zandi. Mark, it's great to have you on and good morning. Good morning. So how do you explain this dilemma that we're living in right now? Companies saying that there's a shortage of workers while at the same time we're still six million, six million jobs short um, of since the pandemic. Well, so it's a range of regions, Seema, and uh, I put at the top of the list the parents taking care of children who've been schooling online. That, that obviously will change here in the next few weeks. That's a good thing. Uh, pe- uh, people taking care of their elderly parents. Uh, they, a lot of people took uh, parents out of nursing homes because that was ground zero for the virus early on. People fearful of getting sick uh, going back to work. Uh, People that are taking care of sick people, family members and friends, uh, people that are sick themselves. And lots of people lost their jobs permanently. Their previous employer went out of business. And uh, as you know, finding a new job, uh, working out commutes and child care issues just takes a little bit of time. So a whole range of reasons, uh, uh, not one, uh, but many. And I'm sure with this Delta variant, if it does continue to present a bigger risk, uh, that will stop a lot of people from going back to work this fall. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's already having an impact, right? I mean, a lot of uh, office workers aren't going back to the office as was planned uh, just a few weeks ago because of Delta. So it's just uh, delaying when they get back. And I was just in San Francisco near the financial district, and it looked pretty quiet. Uh, a lot of the retailers down there, restaurants, were, were, were just weren't busy because there were no commuters co- coming in. And then, of course, uh, every time we have another wave and people get sick, you know, just uh, that's just more people who can't work. And uh, that also just makes more people more fearful and uh, less likely to go to work. So, you know, we have to get to the other side of this pandemic, I think, to really iron out all these issues. When you comb through the jobs data, you know, it does, in a way, does it amplify some of the longstanding fears about automation and robotics and over time, you know, whether we're fully appreciating the effect that technology is having in, fulf- in filling some of the jobs that um, are no longer out there in the market? What, what do you think? Well, I think we need more automation. I mean, I know there's a lot of fear about this, uh, but and it's an age-old fear. Uh, but uh, you know, productivity growth, and that's what this goes to. You know, how can we produce things with fewer people and fewer hours? Has been very, very slow since the financial crisis. It appears to be picking up a bit now because I think businesses are increasingly focused on trying to improve labor productivity because they know labor supply is going to be difficult uh, going forward. It was, yeah, as you can remember, Seema, before the pandemic, the number one business problem was a lack of labor. We're just going to go right back to that because of demographic forces. And so we need to improve productivity. So I'd say, you know, bring it on. Uh, you know, I, I view stronger productivity growth, more automation as a feature, not a bug for, for a future economy. And that was interesting to hear from John Deere last week. I mean, the agriculture equipment maker saying that it's going to accelerate its automation plans and really empower farmers with more drones and other technology because these farmers, they just don't have enough workers to, to pick fruits, to pick vegetables, uh, to spray fertilizer. So that will be one interesting company to watch in this space. As to what it means for Fed policy, Mark, uh, Jerome Powell seemed to be pretty happy with the labor market and the progress that the U.S. is making on the jobs front, but he's still waiting for some mo- movement on inflation. Was that your read? And if so, does this August jobs report this Friday really matter? Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he was pretty sanguine in his speech to Jackson the, at the Jackson Hole uh, meeting uh, last week. Uh, you know, he focused on inflation, a lot of concern about that, as there should be because inflation has spiked. But he made a pretty strong case, I thought, that, uh, you know, this spike in inflation is going to be temporary, as he would say, transitory. So by this time next year, inflation should be back close to the, to the Fed's part target. And, you know, one thing he did uh, focus on was uh, wage growth, uh, you know, going back to the tight labor market. And wage growth has held up admirably well, but it's not uh, growing any more quickly than underlying productivity growth. So, you know, for businesses, there isn't those cost pressures to raise prices more aggressively. So he took a lot of uh, solace in that, and I think appropriately so. So, you know, but the uh, next Friday's jobs number, uh, this Friday's jobs number is coming up. Uh, you know, obviously very important. We're going to see what kind of impact Delta has had on the labor market as it really slowed things down and, you know, what it means for getting back to full employment as fast as possible, because that is, I think, the Federal Reserve's number one goal here is to get back to full employment. If COVID cases uh, peak in the next couple of weeks and we start to see restrictions ease, do you think we'll see a similar post-pandemic rush in terms of consumer activity, similar to what we saw after the first wave of COVID? A bit. I mean, it does appear that consumers have pulled back a little bit because of Delta, particularly around travel. So, you know, airline bookings, uh, uh, hotels, uh, rental cars, uh, maybe a little bit around restaurants. So, you know, perhaps we'll see a bit of just because the pullback has been so far relatively modest, the bounce we're going to get is going to be modest as well. And I think that'll be the case with each successive wave going forward, that the amount of 
uh, underlying pent-up demand that gets unleashed will be less than in the previous, uh, coming out of the previous wave. But, uh, you know, we'll get a bit, but it'll be modest. Mark, always appreciate your time. Thanks for lending your expertise today, Mark Zandi. And a quick look at Zoom shares down 10% in pre-market trade after beating street expectations. That will be a big stock mover today. Thank you for joining me on Worldwide Exchange. I'm Seema Modi. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.